My global IQ is 109. I'm your host, Jim Falk, and today I'm joined by the former dean of Yale Law School, Tony Cronman, who has written a compelling and important book, The Assault on American Excellence. Drawing on his long career at Yale, where he continues to teach, he reminds us of the value of a university education while cautioning that by allowing these halls of learning to become politicized, we accentuate the divides that now plague our daily conversations. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Jim. You write that an essential role of universities, uh, one that I think they've drifted from, is help young men and women become, as you say, simply better human beings. Is there a point in time or an event that where universities really moved away from that? We've been drifting in that direction for some time. I don't know that I could identify a particular historical moment or episode which marked a seismic shift, but for more than a generation, I think um, we have been drifting from the path that seems to me the right and sensible one where higher education is concerned. What are some of the factors that really drove this? Many. Uh, in Increasing pressure on students and on their families to, to use their time in college to prepare for a career and uh, a consequent emphasis on vocationalism and vocational uh, studies. The slow decline of the humanities as a uh, confident set of disciplines that saw their mission as being to prepare students for um, all of the rest of life beyond the vocational part. The humanities have been uh, hurting uh, for some time and have lost as a result, their stature uh, and standing in the eyes of students and their families who drift away from them to subjects that they know have a real postgraduate yield, STEM subjects in particular. Isn't one of the problems that universities have just become so expensive that there's, and, and, and students leave with large amounts of debt and so they really need to earn a salary as quickly as possible to pay that back. That's true. But um, I would add the following caveat. In order to prepare for your next step in life, whatever it might be, you only need to devote a, a reasonable fraction of your time in college to taking the courses uh, and studying the disciplines that you need to take and study in order to be well set up for graduate school, professional school, your first job out, whatever. The rest you could spend without risk or loss studying uh, topics completely far afield of what you imagine your professional trajectory would be. And that should be encouraged emphatically at every step as part of a preparation for, uh, for living uh, as, as opposed to working. Work is important. Uh, it should be remunerative. It should be 
intellectually and personally fulfilling, but work isn't the whole of life. Uh, there's a lot left over when you finished with the work piece of it. When I think back, and it's been quite a few decades, <laughs> I must admit, to the course catalog that I looked at at Washington Lee in the University of Virginia, um, and now when I compare it to course catalogs I see now, it seems that universities have tended to move towards entertainment. I suppose that's true in part. Um, I think a more fundamental phenomenon is the loss of a sense of a common body of knowledge or a shared set of experiences that a well-educated undergraduate ought to be exposed to. So you would advocate for a core curriculum? I would push gently in that direction, recognizing that I'm fighting an uphill battle and that you could never make such a thing compulsory without uh, running into a, into a brick wall. But who is it that is opposed to the idea of a core curriculum today? Well, students partly, but more importantly, faculty. Faculty tend to be in the humanities and, and every other field increasingly specialists in a very small, narrow area of inquiry. And they don't have much interest in teaching subjects or aspects of subjects that fall even a little bit out of the spotlight of their scholarly expertise. And that means that instead of having large introductory survey courses, which give students a sense of the whole sweep of a subject, you have 50 little tiny fly specks of courses, and students don't know what to make of them, how to put them together into a meaningful whole, and as a result, they don't get much of, a, of an integrated education. So how do we get back to what you feel is important? <laughs> I, wish I, had, I wish I had a crisp, compelling answer to that question. Programs like the Directed Studies program, in which I teach at Yale, represent uh, I, I was about to say a step in the right direction. That suggests that directed studies is an innovation. In fact, it's been around for more than 75 years. But, but it does represent the kind of organized, thoughtful, old-fashioned, comprehensive, unspecialized humanities program that I think it's so important for our colleges and universities to at least offer as one alternative among others. It doesn't have to be, it could never be the exclusive alternative. It, honestly, Jim, if I were the czar of higher education could wave my wand, I might impose a compulsory a core of a, of a modest kind. And but, some universities have started to incorporate that. Yes, a bit. Uh, ten, a few have taken tentative steps in that direction. I probably would go further than even the most uh, adventurous, but I'm not the czar, that's not happening. The most that can be done, I think, is to offer an elective program, roughly of the kind that directed studies represents, and just make it so compellingly attractive to students that the volunteers come, they walk through the door and they say, I really want to understand the great contours of Western civilization. And of course, I want to know something about the, at least some of the other great civilizations of the world as well. But let me start with the West. That's my home ground. And I would be, uh, 
I would, I would really feel that I was kind of an ignoramus if I didn't know something about Homer and Plato and Kant and Dante and Don Quixote and the rest. Absolutely. Now a word from our sponsor. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. You've received some criticism of your use of the word aristocracy. <laughs> Explain what you mean by that and why is it important? Aristocracy is simply means the recognition and appreciation of a rank order of achievement or excellence. When it comes to technical subjects, physics, mathematics, uh, microeconomic theory, we recognize without any um, awkwardness that some students just do a better job of mastering the material. There is a rank order of achievement. You, one student gets an A on the exam and, uh, and the next one uh, uh, gets a C. No, no embarrassment, no awkwardness about that. The humanities purport to offer a training not in some narrow skills-based discipline, but in what used to be called the art of living. And it, it rubs people the wrong way to suggest that some people do a better job overall in that pursuit than others do, because it feels so undemocratic. Who, where does anyone get off saying, you're doing a better job at being a human being. It's not at all embarrassing to say you're doing a better job uh, at mastering the discipline of quantum mechanics. But being a human being, that suggests something about the overall worth of the, of the person. But in fact, I do believe that uh, the idea of grades or degrees of achievement or fulfillment in the, in the work, the task, the enterprise, the art of living, that that's a meaningful concept. I would never want to compromise in the smallest degree um, our democratic way of life. Uh, the people are equal. They have, every one of us has one vote and no more. In a court of law, we stand before the judge on a plane of perfect equality. That's great and should never be adjusted uh, or, uh, or compromised. But it is compatible, I believe, with the ideal of progress in the art of living well which is a comprehensive notion that contains multitudes, it contains many different things, and it doesn't come, in my view, to a single thing. It isn't as if there is one uh, 
sole model for living well, and everyone who doesn't live up to it is a failure. There are different ways of doing it, but not an infinite number of different ways. And I don't believe that each of us gets to decide what the standards of judgment ought to be for, for him or herself. And that gets us to this issue of identity, where students feel, perhaps because they're representing a certain minority status, that they have yeah. to defend it. Yes. There is on our campuses, as elsewhere in American society today, a very strong push in the direction of what is sometimes described as identity politics. And that does two things, both of which are destructive. One, it takes away from the idea of participation in a common universal enterprise, breaks people up into groups uh, uh, that are separate and distinct from one another. Secondly, and even more damagingly, it tends to compromise the uh, spirit of independent-mindedness that is at the heart of, well, of intellectual life on a campus, but more generally of living successfully as a human being. If you think that your mind is all, has to already be made up for you because you are an X, whatever the X may be, uh, a member of this ethnic group, that racial community, this gender, or whatever, that spells doom for the spirit of thoughtful, independent-mindedness, which is, encourages, should encourage each and every one of us to make up our own minds for ourselves and put our identities into perspective. Which as much as what we're seeing now with the partisanship, the hyper-partisanship that we're seeing Absolutely. in Washington and across the country. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I was so grateful to your publisher for sending me an advanced copy, and then shortly thereafter, Peggy Noonan wrote a mm -hmm. wonderful column in the Wall Street Journal and declarations where she praised your book. I want to really encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. We talked a bit about the section on universities, but you also wrote about diversity. And I found uh, particularly compelling, as I mentioned, being a graduate of Washington Lee and University of Virginia, the section you wrote on memory about monuments. So I encourage people to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you so much, Tony, for being our guest on Global IQ. Thank you, Jim. Global IQ is a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I'd like to thank my producers, Kara Sheckman and Kayla Smith, for editing and promoting the podcast. I'd also like to encourage you, our listeners, to review the program, as that will help us broaden our reach, and you can do this on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. And with that, I ask, what's your Global IQ? I'm Kirsten Cullenberg, Programs Manager at the World Affairs Council. If you like Global IQ, the best way to support it is by becoming a member of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Join today at dfwworld.org forward slash join or learn about a World Affairs Council in your community by visiting worldaffairscouncils.org.